So, uh, Seth, you've been paying a lot of attention to the context in which we practice mindfulness. I have, and and one of the things I've been trying to think through is the whole issue of what exactly is the context for mindfulness practice, and what happens when we extract it from that mindfulness and export it to some other context, and does that change the meaning of the practice and also the possible range of outcomes for it? So, so in other words, um, the context in which mindfulness evolved uh, came about uh, in Asia uh, many centuries ago versus the context in which we practice it in America? Well, that's, that's one context. If, if you go back to uh, the Asian traditions, for example, there's, there's a Theravada tradition, Theravadan tradition, in which the word sati means mindfulness and has a specific meaning in that context. And then if you look at some of the later North Asian Buddhist uh, um, traditions and lineages, say Zen or Dzogchen, you see that mindfulness has a slightly different meaning in that tradition. And then if you look at the way that it's used in America today, say starting with John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness is paying attention to the present uh, on purpose and non-judgmentally, that's yet a different meaning. Um, and, and what you see is that Kabat-Zinn studied uh, Vipassana practice in Theravada Buddhism. He studied Zen in Korean Zen Buddhism. But he also studied yoga, and he was also influenced by the teachings of Krishnamurti and, uh, and other people who were interested in um, present moment awareness. And then he was also influenced by humanistic psychology and transpersonal psychology and ideas concerning uh, interdependence and a transcendence and present moment centeredness that came out of those schools. And what he's done is he's kind of blended them all together into something, something essentially new. So that when the people sometimes criticize Kabat-Zinn for saying, well, his idea of mindfulness doesn't exactly track what, what appears in, say, the Buddhist Pali canon in terms of definitions of mindfulness. In some ways, that's a, that's a criticism that's off the mark because he's really invented something very new and modern and American in the process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, then... Um, let me say, in what, in what way is what John Kabat-Zinn does different from, say, the Pali canon and from, say, the Zen traditions? Okay, well, let's, it, the, the biggest difference, I think, is with the, the Pali canon tradition, where mindfulness is one of eight, eight uh, aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path, and it's only one aspect of it. It's not the entire path in itself. And as such, there can, there can be right mindfulness and wrong mindfulness. Mindfulness isn't always right mindfulness. You can be attentive to something, but it may not be wholesome, for example, in which case you should disattend to it. Um, in, there's a lot more discursive thought involved in what you do with mindfulness in Theravada Buddhism. You're, you're really looking at the contents of your desires, for example, and your attachments, and you're asking yourself, is it wise or not? Does it lead ultimately to happiness or not? And there are judgments involved, so it's not a non-judgmental attention, yeah. and it's more tightly, it's more tightly uh, tied to an ethical focus. Um, where, whereas um, Kabat-Zinn's approach is much more to just allow whatever to arise to arise and just notice it with bare attention, not making any judgment about it at all. So that, that's, one, that's one major difference between the two. And his mm-hmm. conception is much closer to the Zen conception and uh, the Tibetan Zogchen uh, 
which is much more of a kind of an open, open monitoring uh, kind of awareness of things. Yeah. So, so uh, just uh, from this, we're also uh, touching on the idea that uh, it doesn't really make sense to just speak about Buddhism as a monolith uh, because of all the different traditions in Buddhism and uh, that there, you know, that there would be also differences in practice and difference in purpose. In, Absolutely. Uh, so it makes a lot more sense to talk about Buddhisms, both historically and then also to talk about um, the fact that there isn't any one voice for Buddhism today, that it's multivocal, that there are many traditions, and even within each tradition, there are many different voices speaking. Um, and that the tradition has changed quite a bit historically over 2,500 years. Uh, it's no different than, say, if we looked at uh, Judaism, for example, and we noticed that um, way back in the past, there were many Judaisms, there were Essenes and you know, uh, Pharisees and, and, and Sadducees and so forth. Um, and that it originally started not as a monotheistic religion, but as fealty to one particular God among many gods that existed in the world. Eventually it evolves to monotheism. Uh, it starts out as a religion of ritual sacrifice and later on becomes a rabbinical religion of following a group of commandments and giving charity and prayer. But that's not how it begins. And then if you look at today, there are many different forms of it, whether uh, Hasidic or Orthodox or Reform or Conservative Reconstructionist. There's not just one voice speaking for what it means to be Jewish. And you have to look at, um, at Buddhism in the same way. Yeah, it's a very yeah. complex tradition with many tributaries and many side streams and offshoots. Yeah, so um, maybe there's no such thing as uh, one Buddhism anymore that there is uh, such a thing as one Christianity or one Jewish religion. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's much more helpful to view Buddhism historically as a very complex um, conversation that's gone on over 2,500 years in which there are a lot of tributaries and side streams. And uh, you can look at early Indian Buddhism as being much different than, say, Chinese Buddhism, which mixed what it understood about Buddhism with Taoism and with Confucianism. And then it continues to change as it goes to Japan, for example and then changes again as it comes to America. And within each stream of Buddhism, there are many, many different voices. There are many, many different schools. So even within Zen, there are, there are different schools, such as Rinzai Zen versus Soto Zen, and they have different opinions than different Japanese schools of Buddhism, like Tendai or Shingon or Nichiren. It's, it's, it's like looking at Christianity and seeing, trying to guess what Roman Catholics have in common with Unitarians, Jehovah Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons, for example. Mm -hmm. They're all expressions of Christianity, but they all have very different sets of beliefs. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, we're talking about this within the context of context, so that things, you know, practices evolve because they fit a certain context. And, and so, um, you know, maybe we can talk about the context in America these days, uh, compared to, say, the context in which Buddhism evolved? Mm -hmm. Well, once again, if you're looking at American Buddhism, you're looking at a very complex phenomena with different streams and currents. Uh, Anne Gleig just wrote this wonderful book called American Dharma that looks at what it calls the postmodern condition of modern American Buddhism and all the different voices in it, saying sometimes quite different things. Um, so you have tendencies... Um, within American Buddhism to modernize and to incorporate 
aspects of Western psychology and Western, Western philosophy, uh, and then other, other uh, reactions against that to try to come back to some kind of orthodoxy. But even these attempts to move back to orthodoxy are really reinventions of an old orthodoxy that really didn't exist. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very fluid kind of situation. But, but I think there have been a number of factors that have really been dominant factors in how American Buddhism is emerging. And they have to do with um, aspects of Western culture that, um, that feel absolutely natural to us. They feel intuitive to us. They, they're part of the culture that we've absorbed and, and they're as natural as the air we breathe to us and we can't even question them. So um, one of these uh, examples is our own beliefs about life after death. And in the West, there are certain dominant beliefs that we have if, if you're uh, a member of an Abrahamic faith, maybe you believe in an afterlife of some kind and in heaven and hell. Or if you're a scientific naturalist, maybe you believe when you're dead, you're dead and that's it. But what we don't tend to believe in is the idea of rebirth, being reborn over and over and over again. And even if you look at some of the, uh, the uh, fringe sects and religions in the United States that do believe in reincarnation, like Rosicrucians or theosophists or anthroposophists and so forth, their belief about reincarnation is still quite different than the Buddhist ideas about it and conception of it. So we, we already have a, a set of beliefs um, that make us think that the idea of reincarnation is probably very unlikely. It's very hard to believe in it. And even if we can entertain the idea that it might be true, um, we still can't base our entire life and how we're going to orient our lives on it. We, it. It's just an interesting idea, but it's not our most important existential concern. So um, that's one idea that doesn't fly, but that was the glue that held all of traditional Buddhism together. The idea that um, karma affected your realm of rebirth and that the reason you behaved ethically was to, um, to end the endless chains of rebirth or at least to be reborn into a better environment and so forth. Um, another thing that is very strong for us is the uh, science and its commitments to naturalism. Just maybe stop there because that's a that's a very big point that um, the uh, you know the big motivating factor for early Buddhists uh, was the idea of interrupting, stopping the the cycle of right. rebirth. Yeah, the whole idea was the cycle was interminable, mm-hmm. and you just one year one birth you went up next. Earth, you went down, you, you would go to hell, you'd go, you'd become a god in the next life and live in heaven. Next time around, you'd be on earth and you'd be an animal. Next time, you'd be a human being. But there was no uh, direction to what happened. You would just endlessly recycle to no point. And there was an existential meaningless to it. So for the ancient Buddhists, the idea of rebirth was suffering. You were chained to this wheel of constantly becoming for no purpose. Right. And they so, felt- so, so that's a very different sense from, say, suffering uh, in this life, because the suffering was not just about the suffering in this life, but it was the, the suffering, you, you used a, a word, you say the meaninglessness of this going on, uh, you know, eternally. That's uh, right. There was an existential dimension to it that's related to something that, uh, uh, you know, what is the purpose of life if all that happens is you keep being thrust into this meaningless cycle of reincarnation. Exactly. And so the goal of the initial Buddhist was to step off that wheel entirely and go to this other state, nirvana, in which there was no further rebirth. Although they were very unclear in specifying what your ontological status was once you stepped off the wheel. Did you exist? Did you not exist? 
it's uh, they would they would have said, well, neither of those terms apply once you yeah. step the wheel of existence. Yeah, yeah, and so um, certainly um, in uh, for contemporary Americans who are adepts of Buddhism. Uh, that is not a very motivating factor per se. So that's kind of usually uh, handled as a metaphor for, uh, you know, the, the karma, the chain of actions have consequences as opposed to necessarily literally being born again. That's right. So, so how do, we're going to exclude from this conversation heritage Buddhists who were raised as Buddhists and their families, you know, and come from Buddhist families. And we're looking at convert Buddhists. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe come as atheists or Christians or Jews and discover Buddhism and, and, and discover they like it better than maybe what they were practicing before in some way. And what are they looking for when they come? And their answer is they're in some kind of distress or suffering or uncomfortableness uh, now. And they're hoping that their meditative practice or their beliefs of Buddhism will somehow relieve their suffering in this life. And that's what people are really looking for, some kind of amelioration of distress within their current lifetime. They're not looking for ending rebirth. Yeah. So that, that changes the whole frame immediately in terms of, of why people are practicing and what they hope to get from that. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I want to make sure to clarify that you're not seeing that as a problem far from that. You're just simply pointing out the difference. That's right. I'm just saying that, that, that the compelling reasons for practice that, People practiced for it within India uh, 2,500 years ago no longer work uh, and no longer answer the questions that people want addressed in our contemporary world. Yeah. And so, in fact, uh, you see this as a continuation of a very Western form of preoccupation with what is the purpose of life and which could be said as described as, say, happiness or maybe even going as far back as Aristotle's concepts. Absolutely. That when we try to think about um, what do we mean when we talk about being good or, or having a good life, or what's the kind of life that we aspire to and hope our children will aspire to and accomplish, um, the kinds of models that we have for understanding what what is good in life or what is human flourishing, uh, there, are, there are no competing models for that. There's a Christian model. There's a Marxist model. Um, there's, there's the, just the, the bourgeois hedonistic model of making as much money as you can and passing it on to your children and so forth, marrying well, achieving social status. But, but the most compelling model that we have of that is really the, some version of the Aristotelian model, which is that um, we're all hoping to kind of develop or unfold in some kind of way that maximizes who we are in, in, in a morally good way. We want to believe that we can develop our strengths, develop our virtues, develop all our, uh, all our um, possible potentials as fully as we can, have the freedom to do so, and to use them in a way that leads to our happiness, and not just exclusively to our happiness, but leads to well-being of other people around us too. We don't, we don't, most of us don't want to be remembered as just the happiest person in the world, but we made everyone around us miserable. We want to believe that somehow other people are glad that we're around and that we make them a little bit better because we're around as well. Yeah. So that's really uh, that model of virtue, um, and developing one's capacities is really kind of an Aristotelian, uh, Aristotelian model. And, 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 and Aristotle had a little bit more to that model, too, in that he also said that we ought to be able to also be contemplative. We ought to recognize deep truths about the nature of our existence. And he also says that we ought to be part of a community. We ought to be um, contributing somehow so that everyone will be able to maximize their potential. 
So that's, I think, I think the most en- enduring model of what it means to live well and have a good life and be a good person. And I think that even people who haven't read Aristotle understand that just from the culture in general. It's, uh, yeah, I want to. I think at some point you you you, you use the analogy of that uh, old slogan for the army of "Be all that you can be." So exactly. that it's not. It's certainly not something that only applies to people who study philosophy. Um, right, and when I, and when I went to undergraduate school in the State New University of New York at Binghamton, the State University of New York has the model: let each become all he is capable of being. It's the same sort of model that's that's really uh we all believe in i think in some way or another that's yeah. what we're trying to accomplish in life and be and that's what we want our kids to do and so so then we uh, really go with the concept it's a it puts a different angle on buddhism that as for many people who practice buddhism in contemporary america it's actually not so much trying to do something that is foreign or something that's exotic but it's actually finding tools that better allow people to do something that's been a longing in the civilization for millennia. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a way people find the way they construe and use Buddhist practice as a way of increasing their own well-being and maximizing their ability to become the kind of person they wish they could be. Um, and this changes some of the Buddhist ideas even, even more dramatically, I think. Um, when the ancient Buddhists talked about reaching nirvana, part of what they meant by that was ending all desire and ending all attachment and just, you know, disconnecting from all of that so that every situation that occurs is just fine as it is. Um, and I find that while there's some, there's a, there's some degree of psychological truth in that, that accepting the reality the way it is and not demanding it be different from the way it is, is actually a very sane and good thing to do there's a way in which it seems rather extreme and, and counterintuitive um, because we, when I look at what I really want from life, I don't want to be desireless. I like my desires. You know, I, I, I like the fact that I want to see something beautiful when I look out at my window. And so I cultivate my garden. You know, I like the idea that um, I want my food to be tasty and not repulsive. I, I do want to wear nice clothes and live in a house that's comfortable and have good health care. Um, I, I want air conditioning in the summer. I mean, there are all kinds of things I want that I don't want to necessarily let go of. And in addition, I like my attachments. In fact, it's my attachments to my family and my friends uh, and, and the communities that I belong to that make my life as rich as it is. I wouldn't want to, uh, I wouldn't want to live a life where what happened to other people, what, what happened to some stranger wouldn't matter any more to me or less to me than what happened to my own child, you know. I mean, think about the conundrum if, you, uh, if you're at the beach and there are two children who are drowning, and one of them is your own and one is a stranger's. To say that you really shouldn't have any preference at all about which one you save, I say some, it says something very, um, uh, says something that's, that that's, doesn't really reflect the, the genuineness of human nature at all. It's natural for us to care more about the people that we know and are in our lives and strangers. Yeah. It's not to mean that we shouldn't ex- extend goodwill to other people and try to be kind to everyone and recognize that everybody is human and deserves respect and care. But to say that we ought to have no preference at all, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So when I think about those ancient Buddhist ideas, I say, I want to, I want to reform them. I, I don't want to not have desires. Instead, what I want to have is a, is a, a wise relationship to desire, to recognize when desires lead to good outcomes and when they lead to bad outcomes 
to recognize when they're not actually attainable. And so I ought to drop them to recognize when, if I, if I get this desire, it'll interfere with other higher order desires that are more important to me. And therefore I should let go of them. I should be able to think about desire in that kind of way and not be a slave to desire, but be able to, um, to feel it, care about it, and then decide whether it's wise or not and whether to pursue it. And the same thing with attachments. I want to understand whether attachments are healthy or not. And those that are healthy and enrich my life, I want to be able to maintain and enhance them. I don't want to let go of them. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're, it's, a, it's a major shift uh, where, on the one hand, originally, we're talking about something, a way of behaving that is certainly beyond human, Uh, Mm -hmm. No human that we've ever encountered would be able to actually be that way. Absolutely. Uh, And if we had the possibility to be that way, you or I would not want to be that way. Uh, so, so that's kind of a, a, a definition of a of a Buddha as a very, very enlightened person in general is something that is out of the ordinary, mm-hmm. totally. Uh, and we're talking about something that is bringing, you know, our satisfaction, our focus of uh, of practice, our our goals into something that's more of ordinary life and finding contentment and uh, gratification in, in, in regular life. Absolutely. And, th- and that's the key question. Do you want to become transhuman? Do you want to become something and put all your efforts towards becoming something like somebody you have never known or actually met in life? Or do you want to become more human and more yourself in some kind of deep way and find some kind of contentment with it? Those are two very different goals. And so I think one of the, the, the values of articulating that so clearly is uh, it has a practical implication, say, for somebody who is practicing and uh, going to, uh, you know, a group practice and, in a way, trying to say, what is it that you're trying to achieve? You know, in some way, maybe you're trying to achieve, you know, uh, some kind of fantasy of having a connection to some uh, wisdom that gives you a unique grip on the meaning of the universe or something, uh, maybe some kind of mystical enlightenment and nothing wrong with being mystical, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very specific direction. And another would be kind of the mysticism of every day of finding the, um, you know, the, the contentment and happiness and beauty in ordinary things. Yes. Um, and I would just amend that in one way that I think that what, um, the mainstream of American Buddhist modernism does today is it includes that it's aimed at happiness in this life and well-being in this life, a living harmoniously within a community and helping the community grow as well. So it's not self-focused in that way. Um, but it also does have that transcendent element to it, which is an interest in discovering one's deep interconnection to the rest of the world, uh, understanding that, um, that our own idea of what it is to be a self is maybe too narrowly delimited and that it can be expanded in all kinds of ways. So that includes a, includes a deeper interconnectedness, understanding the constructed nature of, of self and how it can be construed differently. I mean, these are all possibilities um, that are also part of modern Buddhist modernism and very important. Um, the idea also of paying, um, of being immediately present in a full way, in a wholehearted way to life, uh, being in touch with what's happening experientially, as opposed to staying cognitively in your thoughts about things, trying to kind of always say, 
well, this is my cognitive map about things, but how does it really feel right now? I mean, I think these are all part of the Western idea of, of enlightenment now as well. And I'm, I want to call this eudaimonic enlightenment rather than just classical enlightenment, just to distinguish it. Yeah. But so it's, within, it's within this larger context of happiness in this life, deeper sense of interconnection to nature and the universe, and the more open uh, attention to ongoing experiencing rather than conceptual thinking about things. Um, it's in this environment uh, that Kabat-Zinn then develops his idea of mindfulness. And when you look at how people are actually practicing mindfulness within, say, John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction or similar kinds of interventions, they're really working within this kind of envelope of what I would call secularized Western Buddhist modernism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and you're right, this, this gives us a map of what we hope to achieve through the practice. It gives us some sense of what the outcomes might be. And it guides us in knowing whether our practice is helping or not, whether we're doing it the right way or not. It it provides a roadmap for all kinds of things. Um, And I think one of the interesting questions is what happens if you try to divorce it from that context and try to export it elsewhere? But so Uh, let's stay there for a moment. I'd like to come back to what you're saying. But just when you talk about a roadmap for the practice, I want to to stay a little bit more with the you know, what does it mean in practice in a way? And so part of it is going to be, um, you know, does, is, is this helping me have more of a sense of my own experience of what I am as a self, you know, not as something, you know, a predetermined idea of a self, something rigid, but uh, the, the moment by moment unfolding of experience that we call the self. And, and, you know, does my notion of myself, in a way, is it, is it transformed? Do I have curiosity to notice aspects of it so that it starts reforming and flowing in a different way? Absolutely. I, I think that's a wonderful way of, uh, of, ex- of expressing it. Do, do I feel more connected to others? Does this help me feel a sense of connection? What's the nature of that connection? You know, does that's that right. connection feed me? Um, that's right. You know, do I contribute to others in a way that actually feeds them and me. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that is subsumed in all of that is subsumed in there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, then a uh, kind of a sense of, um, you know, what am I doing here? What am I doing when I'm sitting or doing any other, you know, pause mindfulness practice? Um, is it something that actually is helping me be more of who I want to be? Uh, is right. it helping me, um, you know, be more present in life? Is it helping me having more options? Uh, is it helping me in some way having a, a better, more happier experience of life? That's right. All of the above. Yeah. And then you could look at specific sub-skills in there as well. Um, am I able to, when I have urges come up or whims come up or desires, am I able to kind of notice them mm-hmm. and, um, and decide, are they helpful or not? Um, Am I able not to believe all my thoughts to realize that all the thoughts, most of the thoughts I have aren't necessarily true. They're just thoughts and, and they're very ephemeral in that kind of way and maybe not too important. Um, Am I experiencing my body fully? Am I present in my body as opposed to just being in my head? Um, And we can go down a whole list of such things. So uh, as you're talking, what uh, what's coming up for me is a sense that maybe instead of enlightenment, you know, in the image of enlightenment or say even awakening uh, by itself evokes something that, oh, 
you know, you cross a gate and something amazing happens. And, um, and, and I'm, as I'm listening to you, I think of more awakening being a verb that's followed by something. And so specifically, awakening curiosity uh, to curiosity about a different way of being. Awakening Absolutely. curiosity about a different way of being in life, of exploring life, of experiencing life. Uh, absolutely no question about it um i i just i had a wonderful thought and i just lost it oh, I'm <laughs> so i want to apologize for that but uh let me see if i can get back to it for yeah. a moment yes i think one of the other major differences between this eudaimonic enlightenment and classical enlightenment is that classical enlightenment or traditional enlightenment saw itself as an endpoint. you got there and there was a place to be, and then you stayed there once you're there. You're, once you're enlightened, you stayed enlightened, and there was nothing further to do. You'd, mm-hmm. you'd done all the work that needed to be done. And I think if instead, if you look at the idea of enlightened being as a horizon, that you're kind of seeing as a, as a kind of a maybe a long-term dimension that you're heading towards, but that you realize that it's just an ongoing process of awakening after awakening after awakening with no end and no predetermined endpoint. I think that's a much, I, th- I think that's more accurate about how most people look at in quotes enlightenment now, not as a, a endpoint, but as an ongoing awakening process of awakening that we never, we never complete. But, yeah. and, and, it, and, and, and that's exciting to yeah, think yeah. about the, that we always have more to grow. <laughs> so, so you're talking about say in a way the ING not being a noun that marks a moment, but the ING uh, the same way as we say walking or eating that marks this process. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I interrupted you earlier when you, you were going to talk more about the eudaimonic um, um, awakening, eudaimonic uh, enlightenment. Um, so, so, you know, did, or have we just uh, covered that? I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not sure I heard everything that, that you yeah, said. Just now. Uh, I think I interrupted you earlier. I, I think I think I I don't think I need to say more about it right now. Okay, so let's take, just take a moment to see um, whether it feels right to end here, or whether there's something else you might want to add. Yeah, I wanted to talk about what happens when you remove mindfulness practice from that context that I've been talking about of eudaimonic mm-hmm. enlightenment, because we're talking now about. Um, since John Kabat-Zinn introduced the idea of mindfulness, we've seen it. We've seen uh, mindfulness interventions expand into almost every possible imaginal space. Whether you're talking about uh, mindfulness for depression or specific disorders, mindfulness for cancer, mindfulness for attention deficit disorder, but we're also seeing it move into the boardroom in terms of life coaching for executives or into sports teams, and we're seeing it uh, being brought into the military in terms of trying to make soldiers more mindful so that um, they're more discerning in moments of crisis and can make wise choices in those moments and so forth. And there are a number of critics who uh, have been quite vocal in the last few years about this, saying, um, is mindfulness being used in some way to, um, as a kind of a soporific? To, to, there's a, there, are, there are a lot of negative things in our culture, whether it's militarism or, or, or greedy forms of capitalism and so forth in which, um, say, corporations, for example, might exploit the workers, prefer the workers to be happy and pleasant, but on less wages and uh, with fewer benefits and working longer hours and so forth. So let's just introduce a mindfulness program and uh, 
you know, maybe we can make our workers uh, less disturbed so that they, uh, they take fewer sick days and we spend less on uh, health care and so forth. But there's no real interest in making the workers better. So is it becoming a soporific or, or sop in some ways to prop up like the new opium the rotten system? And, excuse me? The new opium of the people. The new opiate of the people, exactly. So I, I think that's um, at this. I think it's something we need to think about. So, so one thing we ought to be aware of is that as, say, mindfulness teachers move into corporate environments or into the military, they need to be very aware of the uh, possible conflicts of interest that occur. If I'm a mindfulness teacher and I want to uh, go to a large corporation like Monsanto and I want to teach, for example. Uh, the workers who suffer from the same kinds of existential anxieties and problems that all of us do, and it might benefit them in some way. Am I going to downplay some of the elements, elements of mindfulness as I bring it into the corporation so that I might emphasize it as a stress reduction technique and not look at its possibility that people might become more aware of the conflicts between their values and their employer's values and to find the courage to speak up about it, which is also part of mindfulness. Will I, will I tailor in such a way that I change its outcome? So I think that people who move into different contexts need to be very aware of possible conflicts in ownages that might compromise their integrity as they move into these areas and need to stay focused on that as they do. I, I also think it's possible um, to export mindfulness in ways that are entirely malignant. So I, I want us to imagine for a moment a different philosophy other than eudaimonic enlightenment. I want to imagine a philosophy of selfishness, pure selfishness, uh, in which we say that life is nasty and brutish and short, and the best we can do is aggrandize ourselves and get and gain whatever we can at the expense of other people, and that life is a zero-sum game, and every time we defeat someone else and get what we want, we, we've succeeded in as best we can. And how would mindfulness function in there? It would, it would be like a, a tool to always be vigilant to where you might get your advantage or to be always vigilant at uncovering nefarious plots by your competitors and so forth. And it, it could be something that doesn't support eudaimonia and a well of life at all, but something um, rather selfish and narrow. Um, and I, I, um, D.T. Suzuki, who was one of the people who introduced Zen to the West, back in 1938, he wrote a book on, uh, on Zen Buddhism and Japanese culture in which he made the claim, which is probably not historically true, that, that Zen was an important part of the samurai culture of Bushido, for example, and that somebody who learned to meditate as a samurai warrior could learn that life and death are, are insignificant, you know, that, um, um, that uh, one can remain calm under all circumstances and be able to see where your opponent's you know, uh, vital organs lie very quickly without being distracted by other thoughts. And it could be part of the way of a warrior to just remain calm and focused as a killer. Um, well, that may or may not be true. Samurai may, not have, may or may not have, on the whole, practiced meditation. But there are modern examples of people who've done just that, sociopathic individuals, who've used meditation to focus, to, um, to further their own designs. Uh, I, I read a case of a, uh, of a would-be serial killer who uh, killed one person and almost killed some others back in New York City in 1996, who um, practiced meditation before going out on a killing spree. He was, for example, on one occasion, he was meditating by a stream in Central Park and then saw somebody went by and went off and attacked them. 
And we see the case of uh, Anders Breivik, the Norwegian mass murderer, who also used meditation in the same way. He, he said it would make him it would make him numb and indifferent, you know, to the suffering of others when you practiced it. So clearly, th- there are ways to use meditation that are malignant when they're practiced within a, f- a larger frame that doesn't support human flourishing. So I think we just need to be very careful and not always say, well, learning to meditate is always a good thing and is always useful and always promotes human growth. It does when you're practicing it within a larger, meaningful framework that supports yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, so that's a, the large and meaningful framework comes back uh, to the ethical orientation of Buddhism and also to that sense of values uh, that's embedded in the Aristotelian ideal. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we very much stay within that uh, uh, notion of mindfulness in context. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) This is part of the Relational Implicit podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to relationalimplicit.com.